Amen. Go and have a seat. God, you're worthy of our singing. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our lives. And Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who is able to provide life to your people. It's not found in us. It's found in you. So our confidence, our boast is only found in you. So would you remind us this morning of the incredible blessing of being your children by no work of our own, but by faith in your name, Jesus. And, and God, I ask for a supernatural miracle today to take place through our time in your word, and I pray that you would loosen our hands off the temporary things of this world, and you'd lift our hands to the permanent things of heaven. We are so prone to clamor for security where it can't ultimately be found. So help us to find it in you today. Help us to find hope in the truth of your word. Help us to find security in the future based on the things that you've said in the past. And we love you. We marvel at your grace. And I pray that we'd be amazed at it once more as we study your word this morning. Thank you for your word that is a light unto our feet. It's a, it's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And we ask you now that you would illuminate it to us by work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Uh, my name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, grateful to be with you, grateful to worship with you. And if you're new with us, we're grateful that you've decided to join us this morning. And if you come in this morning just unsure who Jesus is, unsure where to find life, we just want to invite you along in the journey of finding life in him. We're grateful that you've come here to join us to sing his praises, and we're going to look at his word to see what he has for us this morning. If you're part of our church family, what a joy it is to be together and to be able to find hope in places where it's lasting. Amen? Let's look in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to dive right in. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 uh, first, and then we'll pause for a second and kind of get some bearings a little bit. Today we'll be looking at what's called the day of the Lord, a massive topic in Scripture. But in chapter 3, this is what we read in the first seven verses. Peter says this. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. For they, these scoffers, deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And we'll pause there for a moment. This is kind of a, a little bit of a morbid thought in some ways, but I think you'll know why I'm going to share it just here in a moment. Uh, sometimes I have the thought of, you know, when I leave this life what do I want my family to remember? 
Like if I was to give them a particular message, if I only had a few moments to leave behind for them, something I wanted them to take and hold on to as a treasure and as a source of security, what, what might I say? It's a legitimate thought. And I would say this is some of what happens in this letter. So Peter, if you kind of pan back in the letter, he references how his time is short, how his, his life is going to be taken from him in short order. Somehow God had revealed that to him. And so he says earlier in the book, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, he says, Therefore I intend you always to remind you of these qualities, growing in godliness, Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I'm in the body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. This letter is a little bit like a parting letter from Peter to the people of God. There's some particular things he wants them to remember. And as we get into chapter 3 of the book that we're studying, his second letter to the Christians who are scattered about in Asia Minor, he starts with this note. It says, beloved, which is a little bit like water in a parched ground. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, chapter 2 is a rough chapter. Um, arguably one of, the, one of the most severe chapters of judgment in the whole Bible because of the way Peter uses language to speak out against false prophets and false teaching. So you hear we're like a beloved, you're like, man, I think the Lord, this gets a little bit better. But there's, there's something significant about him looking at his family, his family of faith, much like I would look at my own and saying, I love you and I care about you and I want you to, to be stirred up in reminder about the things that God has once said. And so he starts with that. He says, this is second letter that I'm writing to you to stir you up by and sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. There's those words, reminder, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. A little bit like a three-headed monster of reminder. The holy prophets in the Old Testament, the commandments of Jesus, and those same commandments given through the apostles, these New Testament witnesses of the, the ministry of Jesus. It's like, I want to push you backward to give you security for what's ahead. Isn't that kind of the way in which the Christian life is lived? Like we get security about the future through what has been said in the past. The Word of God. I'm here not giving you any new news. I mentioned this a few weeks back. Just old good news. Revelation from God. It's the truth of His Word for us today to give us hope for the future. But it's been said in the, in the past, right? So Peter's saying, I want you to remember this. And his labor seems to stabilize the people of God against people and forces that would unsettle their faith. He's like, remember God's word to be stable, to be steady versus these other people that he mentions in chapter 2, verse 14, these unsteady souls. And so for the Christian, our security is brought about in the future as we look back to the past. And we live lives of perpetual remembrance. We do that in Thanksgiving to some degree, right? We look backward. And why do we do that? We need to be reminded that we have a lot to be thankful for. We, we need to be reminded that God has been really good to us this last year. We need to specifically take moments to give thanks to God for his faithful hand in our lives. That's what many, if not most, maybe all of us did this last week, right? To pause, to be reminded of the goodness of God in our lives practically as we give thanks around the table, most of us through eating food together, but we live lives of perpetual remembrance. 
As I mentioned last week, if you've been with us, and I'd encourage you, if, if you join us for the first time, you want a little bit more framework for this book, um, as we've studied, studied through chapter two, maybe go back and listen to the last couple messages, not because they're awesome, just because it'll give you a little more context for this chapter. Because as you look at chapter two, verse one, through chapter three, verse 13, 35 verses, some 16 verses speak in really clear verbiage about the judgment of God. Like almost 50% of the verses are given to different displays and language about the judgment of God. And we don't like to talk about judgment. I wouldn't prefer to preach on it, quite honestly. But one of the things I mentioned last week is that the benefit of, of seeing the certainty of the judgment of God is it ushers us into proximity with the mercy of God. Like it gives us the, the security of the mercy of God in light of the judgment that we so rightfully deserve from God as those who have rebelled against his kingship. And, but we see this picture of judgment in chapter 2. We're going to see it again in chapter 3. And many of these pictures give a picture of judgment being stored up or kept until a future day, a, a day commonly referred to in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, as the day of the Lord. You see in 2 Peter 3, 4. There's this promise of his coming, which we'll come back to that in just a second. The, the scoffers say something about a particular moment. Verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? 2 Peter 3, 7, there's a day of judgment. 2 Peter 3, 10, there's the day of the Lord. 3, 12, the day of God. And these are all the same moment. This is basically captured in this, that human history is going to end with a day of final judgment from the hand of God. It's called the day of the Lord. And so we're going to take some time to try to understand, to give us some stakes in the ground and some bearing before we get to the, the back half of this chapter that's more application. Like, what does it mean for us? Like, what kind of people should we be if we know this truth? It's kind of the question that Peter asked. But let me just give you maybe a, a brief summary, my attempt at trying to summarize in a plain way, what is the day of the Lord? And we'll have this up here on the slide. The first is this, that there's a future day when Jesus Christ will come again. And that day will simultaneously be a day of global judgment and glorious hope. Judgment for those who have not believed in Jesus and hope for those who have. That's a summation. There's a lot more layers you could attach to it. But the picture is this in the Bible, that Jesus came once and he's coming again. The very first time I had a chance to share the gospel with someone in my life, I came to faith in college. Some of you heard me tell this story about Justin Martinez. Justin was a coworker of mine. I was in an internship. He came in. He had a dream. He was going to hell. I'm like, I'm a brand new believer. I was like, well, I have a solution. I know Jesus. And so I didn't know what I was doing. I just gave him what I knew. And it included the fact that Jesus was coming again. And so I get through it, and I'm preaching as best. I don't even know what I said, but it's like, Jesus loves me, this I know. The Bible tells me so. And Jesus is coming back. So get your, get your heart right with him, right? But that final statement of Jesus coming back was almost like the tipping point in our conversation because he looked at me. He was like, he's like, you really believe that? I was like, oh, I was so discouraged. Justin came to faith years later after going to prison by, just by way of no, just plant seeds wherever the Lord allows you to plant seeds in water. My point is this, is that people will scoff at the notion that there's a final day of judgment, that Jesus is actually returning. 
And people will want to stay away from the notion of a final day of accounting and reckoning for the way we've lived our lives and the way we have or have not trusted in Jesus. Hebrews 9 verses 27 and 28 says it this way, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And I want to give you three layers about the day of the Lord. I'm, time is working. I have so many notes. I'm like, Lord, please help me with this. There's so much that could be said here, but here's three layers of this. The first one is this. On the day of the Lord, God will judge the ungodly. Now, we probably don't often read minor prophets, the smaller prophets in the Old Testament. The prophet Joel is largely about the day of the Lord. You can read the whole thing in probably 10 minutes if you take your time. But here's a section from the book of Joel about the day of the Lord. Verse, chapter 1, verse 15 starts this way. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. The day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. In chapter 2, verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? On the day of the Lord, God's global judgment will be poured out upon the earth, and every single place it falls will be just. Every single ounce of rain in the ancient world that we talked about last week, the global worldwide flood, every single drop was a reminder of the wrath of God. And the day of the Lord will come with such fierce judgment, but every place it falls will be right. But just as God rescued Noah and Lot, God will rescue his people, the elect from his coming wrath. That's the second part. In the day of the Lord, God will judge the ungodly. In the day of the Lord, God will rescue his people. The day of the Lord is going to be preceded by a period of intense persecution against the, the people of God. But the church will be taken out of and rescued from the ultimate trial of the wrath of God against the ungodly. You can look at Luke chapter 17 and Matthew chapter 24. We see this in Matthew chapter 24. Upon his return, God's angels will gather the elect, the church, the people of God. They'll meet him in the clouds, in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, which is the same day when God will pour out his judgment on the world. And the ungodly, the same day, will simultaneously be a day of worldwide judgment unrivaled judgment, but unimaginable glory and rest and redemption for the people of God. The same day, the day of the Lord. Matthew 25, verse 31 and 32 and 46 says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, the goats, a picture of those who don't believe in God, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, into eternal life. And if I could pause for a second, in case this is cloudy for anybody, when we talk about the ungodly, 
Every single person in this room is in that category. We talk about the unrighteous. Every single one of us have worked in unrighteousness. And it's only by a miracle of God through faith in Jesus that anyone is accounted as righteous. So earlier in the book, Peter talks about the righteousness obtained through faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. So please don't miss that. I'm not talking about those who have lived better lives than others. And we'll get to how this changes our life. But the rescue is ultimately of ungodly people who have been made blameless by faith in Jesus. The rescue and redemption is by faith in Christ, not by anything that we've done. Lest any man should boast in the presence of God. No one has ground for boasting. And when he returns, the only way that we could say, it is well with my soul, when we see him in his glory, the only way that we could ever respond with, it is well, is because we've been found in Jesus Christ alone. Otherwise, that moment, it would not be well with us. Like the rest of creation and those on the earth will clamor for covering from the wrath of the Lamb. That's what you see in Revelation chapter 6. But if we've run to him for covering in this life, we'll find ourselves saying, it is well with my soul, Lord, that you are here. Come quickly. Come quickly. Maranatha is what you see at the end of the book of Revelation. On the day of the Lord, God will judge the ungodly, those who still rebel against his name. On the day of the Lord, God will rescue his people. And on the day of the Lord, God alone will be exalted. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 17. It's a quick summary of this section. It says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. That's the day of the Lord. Against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Verse 17, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I remember having this feeling when I watched The Passion of the Christ for the first time. And sometimes when you read the Gospels and you see Jesus' suffering, there can be this feeling. I remember what I felt when I watched The Passion of the Christ for the first time. Is there's a part of me who's like, just kill him. Stop taking this punishment. Don't let them execute you. Don't let them insult you and spit upon you and beat you. Take them out. Right? There's a sense of indignation. How can it be that the Lamb of God would just be executed? And you want this vindication, this justice. This moment will be that moment. And God alone will be exalted. And there will be no question that the Lamb is supreme. The Lamb of God, the same one who takes away the sin of the world, will dwell on his glorious throne forever. Praise the Lord. And all who exalted themselves will be brought low. And the one who is brought low, Jesus, will be exalted Right, we see that in Philippians chapter 2, the one who emptied himself, the God of the universe, and this is what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation. He 
he who is high became low. The one who dwells in unapproachable light is born into darkness, right? The one with unimaginable wealth becomes poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. He takes on the form of a man. He, He humbles himself and becomes a servant to men, empties himself of all divine privileges for the moment that he might go to the cross and become obedient to the Father's will unto the cross. And as a result of that, he's been given the name, and it's above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On the day of the Lord, God alone will be exalted. And Peter says this, He's like, church, Christians, you need to be reminded that people will doubt that this day is coming. People will come and they will scoff at the notion that time is going to end with the moment of final accounting. And so he encourages them by way of reminders so that they're not caught by surprise. He says, people, false teachers, will mock the promises of God and seek to cast doubt on the faithfulness of God to his promises. If you look back at the words in verse 4, they will, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? They're basically like, hey, where's your God? You said he's going to return. Like, where's he at? Ever since the beginning, everything's been going on just like it always has been. Like, where's he at? With his sarcastic tone. If your God's a rescuer, let him rescue you. Peter's like, you need to be reminded, just know this, first of all, that there will be people who come that cause doubt in your mind as it relates to the promises of God and the assurance of his return. But don't get caught up in those lies. Stir up your mind sincerely by way of reminder in the promises of God in the Old and the New Testament in the words of Jesus and the words of the apostles. And church family, I would say this too, like Noah, back in Genesis chapter 6 and before chapter 6. He was, a, he was a preacher of righteousness. But rest assured, Noah was mocked for his preaching, building a giant boat in a place where there was no water. You can imagine. Like, we're, we got enough imagination. We can probably figure out what that felt like. But he preached righteousness unto being scoffed at. You look at Lot when he ran into Sodom and Gomorrah and warned his own family. It says that his sons-in-law laughed at him. They thought it was just in jest. It will be that way for us. Just like when Justin heard my words trying to share the gospel with him. Hey, Jesus came and he came like grace personified to take on the sins of men. And he's going to come again in glory. Run to him. Like surrender to him. He's going to come back. And that notion people will scoff at. It'll seem to them like some tale, some fairy tale. They'll scoff. They'll say, where is his return? But notice the reason that they do that. Look in verse 3. People will come with scoffing, the very end of that verse, following their own sinful desires. These scoffers deny a future day of final accountability 
in order to preserve a sense of personal autonomy. And we talked about that in the false teachers, right? Like they love sensuality more than sanctification. That's one of the marks of a false teacher. They want to give you license versus talk about how the gospel helps you live holy lives and godly lives with sincerity. But they, they want to deny the return of God to maintain a sense of personal autonomy, rebellion against authority. It shouldn't surprise us that these scoffers and that the world around us would seek to unhinge from God as their creator, right? Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. That's Romans chapter 1, describing the predicament and condition of all humanity. And just in case we feel a little bit sympathetic for like, hey, they just don't, they just don't know. They just don't know what they don't know. Look in verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Pause there just for a second. And these scoffers would seek to unhinge themselves from being accountable to a creator. This is an interesting evidence that the creation account is actually really important. We're made in the image of God and by Him and for Him. That means we are accountable to Him with our lives. If you can unhinge from God, and Pastor Bill said it this way, if you un-God, God, you unman man. He is the basis for who we are. He's the basis for morality. So if you unhinge from Him, then there's no wonder that everything is just craziness around us. There seems to be no bearing in the hearts of men. But they overlook the creation of all things deliberately. And you see this whole mention of water. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you'll see why Peter references water. Because in the beginning, there was formless and void. There was the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. You see all this reference to water. It was gathered up. It was put in its place to create land and seas. Water was filled with creatures and life. And so you, he's just basically giving the depiction that God created the world once. And by that same water that he made, he destroyed it. But you need to understand that moment of destruction is a, is a mere foreshadowing of what's to come. That's his connection. God destroyed it once, and he's going to do it again on the day of the Lord. And there's some debate as to whether or not like what comes next and the dissolving of the heavens and the earth, if it's an absolute destruction or destruction enough just to recreate. I don't think that's really all that important, but to know that everything will be wiped away and God will start anew with a new heavens and new earth, which we get to at the end of this section. I'm getting ahead of myself. In verse 6, they deliberately overlook the same creation that exists now will be destroyed by the Word of God. Verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. And one of the things I was caught by studying this this week is this, this, this idea of that now exists. There seems to be this kind of juxtaposition, this comparison to that which is temporary and that which is permanent. Like there's a, this world, the heavens and earth as they now exist will be dissolved They'll be destroyed. They're temporary. And so here's the point of me bringing this up. I, I would submit to you that one of the great deceptions of this world and of our enemy is found in causing us to believe that the temporary is permanent and that the permanent is fraudulent. 
And I think you see that in this text. And just think about your own life. Just for a second. Think about the various ways, as I prayed at the beginning, the various ways we clamor for security in this life. One of the chief deceptions that we give into is believing that this place that now exists is permanent, but it's actually temporary. And one of the, the, the lies that we hear from the enemy is that which is actually permanent, heavenly things, a new heavens and new earth, that that actually is a fraudulent lie and not worth living for. There's no wonder that we see in the New Testament all these calls to like, to set aside the things of the world. Set your mind and your eyes upon the things of heaven, not the things of the earth, right? Cling to that which is actually permanent and eternal. And Peter says, just like Jude says, you beloved, build yourselves up in the in your most holy faith, and pray in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Let's go back to the text. We're going to read this final stretch, and I'll make some observations just for application. Verse 8, read through verse 13. After speaking about the day of judgment, destruction of the ungodly, Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a run. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening, eagerly waiting for the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter wants us to understand, like, hey, maybe you look around and maybe you've felt this before. It's like, why is it taking so long? That you look around at the wicks around you, maybe wickedness even done to you. Like, Lord, where are you? Like, when are you going to come? And I think if we're honest, if we sit on that long enough, like, our hearts ache for that. Like, we long for justice to be done in a world where injustice is rampant to the most helpless among us injustice is rampant and so we ache for this answer like Lord when are you going to make this right and we feel that and it can be a source of doubt in the promises of God but Peter says hey just be reminded that God isn't bound by your standard of time to him one day is like a thousand a thousand like one and you might think he's slow but just remember that his delay is nothing but patience. And his patience is mercy to those who have yet to believe in him. So don't be too quick to beg him to return. Because his failure, his delay in returning is, is mere patience and 
mercy so that more would come to know him and reach a place of repentance and not perish. Man, and we need to hear that because we long for justice to be done. And God is like, just wait. I'm, I, know, I understand it's hard, but I'm waiting because I want more people to come to know me. Like what a gracious and merciful act of God. He isn't slow as we understand slowness. And if you're in this room and you've never trusted in Jesus, maybe you've been to church countless times. Maybe you grew up in the church and went away. I don't know your story. In a room this size, it's likely there's somebody in here that's not a Christian. Here's the application for you. God is patient, but you have no guarantee for tomorrow. And so the Bible says, call on him while he is near. Run to him while you have legs to stand on. Praise his name while you still have breath. Because you have one life to live. And in that life, you have one chance to surrender to the one who made you by himself and for himself. Go to the Lord while he is near. Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah captures it. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And it's notable that the solution to perishing is repentance. You see this in Romans chapter 2. The kindness of God leads us to what? Repentance. A turning. Like it's a, maybe in some ways it sounds like a complicated biblical word. Repentance is literally turning from. I'm living for myself and for sin. I turn from that and I want to live for God. That's the biblical picture of repentance. Turn away from the things that you're chasing for security and life. The works that you think make you right with God. Turn away from those things and run to Christ. It's only in him that you can find stability and security and life and righteousness. Give up that which is perishing in exchange for an inheritance that is imperishable. And there's irony in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. So Peter depicts the irony of it all because the temptation to, is to believe that God's return is slow and actually it's going to be swift and unexpected. It's going to come like a thief in the night. In a remarkable mystery, not even the Son of God knows the, the timing of his return. Only the Father knows. But it's going to come when we don't expect it. So in this ironic twist, we believe it's slow, but it's actually swift and sudden, will actually sneak up on us unexpectedly, as it were. But this picture is that for the people of God, we're ready. We're ready. Because we're, we're actively living for him. There's no reason for us to be insecure about whether it's tomorrow, because we're busy about doing his work. Living for him. We have security because I'm living for him. I want to make him known. I want to live a life, not perfectly, but a life given to the things of God. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 6, it says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, church, people of God, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. 
For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. You see this picture in 1 Peter as well. Because Jesus' return will be swift, be sober. If I could use that picture of sober and drunk, the picture might be something like this. Don't get drunk off the fraudulent pleasures of the world, but be sober in the things of God. Be serious about your walk with God because you have no guarantee for tomorrow. He gives you today. Give your life to him today. You have no guarantee for tomorrow. Live for him today. He gives you life for today. You have no guarantee you'll be breathing tomorrow. Give him your breath today. Praise his name today. Amen? That's us as the people of God. Like we know we have light given to us within us to live out in this life. In that sense, we're not surprised when he returns and Peter in another place has set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed. In this last part, in verse 11 through 13, Peter's like, since all these things are true, since the certainty of the judgment of God, where all the ungodly will be judged, the people of God rescued, God alone will be exalted, how then should we live? Like, what kind of people should we be? And he answers his own question. Living lives, the end of verse 11, of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What kind of people should we be? We should be a holy people. Not holy in this weird sort of self-righteous way, with our noses in the, the air, but holy because we've been given a foreign righteousness by God. We see earlier in the book, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. So if you're a Christian in this room, every single day you put your feet on the ground. You can have this wonderful, like unimaginable strength and power to say that sin is not my master anymore. Jesus is. So when I step, it's like I'm walking on the throat of the devil and all of his schemes and my sin through the power that lives within me, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead allows me to walk in newness of life. Live lives pursuing holiness and godliness. Seek to be more like Jesus in your life because he's given you everything you need to do just that. Until he returns. Live lives of holiness. You have all you need. Maybe lastly, to put it this way, is that we're people who wait. But not a waiting, just kind of twiddling our thumbs. But a waiting like your, your favorite person is gone and you're waiting for them to come back. Man, I just I can't wait for him to re- I can't wait for her to return. I can't wait for them to return. Can you, can you think of that feeling that you have? Maybe your favorite person in the world coming back from a trip, your favorite friend, and the feeling, man, I just, can't, I just can't wait. That's the kind of waiting we're talking about. In the book of Titus, you see this picture as well. And I'll finish with this in one additional thought. But in Titus, you have this picture in chapter 2. Speaking of the grace of God and Jesus that appeared once, says this, that we are called to be upright and godly, 
living those kind of lives in the present age in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if I'm honest with you, like I don't often think this way, as often as I should, do I see it as my blessed hope. The culminating moment of my hope is when Jesus splits the skies. And in that moment, there's unimaginable glory and rest and grace. Why? Because he comes bringing grace. That's what you see in 1 Peter. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, when Jesus returns, you'll know why it's called your blessed hope. Because he comes delivering the grace that you now sit in by faith will be your sight when he returns. And what you now know in part, you'll know in full when he returns. The blessed hope of the believer. I'll close with these words from Joel. I found it really interesting that in Joel chapter 3, I'm talking about the day of the Lord because that whole book is about the day of the Lord. He gives this picture of the multitudes upon multitudes in the valley of judgment. Here's what's interesting is the translation, the word is given the valley of decision. It's a translation of the same word as judgment in this case. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Some of you today is the moment of decision. Like anytime we're confronted with the reality of judgment, like we have to decide if we're going to follow God or not. Wholeheartedly. This is not some heavy-handed, like, commending you, like, stop messing around and follow God. It is that, but this is, this is the decision point. Like, we we're faced with these moments in life where I wonder, like, am I really going to live for God? Is he really worth it? Am I going to find him to be the one I call my blessed hope and run with expectation into his arms? Or am I going to cower at his return because I'm not quite sure if I belong to him or not because I've been busy just kind of clouding the picture of my salvation by having one foot in the world and one foot in attempt in the kingdom of God. This valley of judgment is a valley of decision. And the wonderful picture is this, and you see this in the book of Acts, and I'll close with these very words. It shall pass in that moment, the valley of decision, confronted with the judgment of God, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Every single one who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on his name while you can. And church family, let's live for him while we can. Amen? Let's pray. God, I think, I think all of us um, are guilty in a myriad of ways of living like we have endless tomorrows. And there's a temptation in believing that, that we're somehow disconnecting from the eminence of your return, that it could be at any moment. It'll be sudden. It'll be unexpected. And so I ask that you'd help us. I pray that for anyone in this room that has never 
surrendered completely to Jesus that they'd find in him to be the rock of their salvation. As opposed to being those who clamor into the mountains to ask rocks to cover them when Jesus returns, that they would find themselves right now resting in him as the rock of their salvation so they won't have to shy away at his return. Thank you that you offer us freely and fully the forgiveness that's granted through your word, Jesus. You lived perfectly in our place. You died as our substitute to take on our wrath so there's no more left for us to drink, that every single ounce of the Father's wrath for our sin was paid for. And so I pray that as a church, as individual believers, that there would be a deep earnestness for the things of God. That of all the things that we could have responded to, that Peter could have outlined, is what should our response be to the day of the Lord? The response is live lives in holiness and godliness and wait with eagerness for his return. Help us to do just that. Help us to live lives of holiness, set apart for the things of God, passionate about the word of God, living by the power of the spirit of God, and and all of it waiting with eagerness for your return. And there will be a day where you'll rescue us. And I pray that we look now, even as we sing this song, which is great expectation as the bride of Christ to that day where Jesus, you as our groom, will take us to be yours forever forever united, where not only the the penalty of sin will be paid for and its power kept from us, but ultimately the very presence of sin will be dealt with and taken away and we'll be in a place where righteousness dwells forever. We long for that day. We say, Lord, come quickly and as you're patient, help us to be those who preach Jesus to this world that desperately needs to, to hear about the good news of his work. It's in his name I pray. Amen.